I'm Dan Diamond, and this is Pulse Check. The JP Morgan Healthcare Conference is the biggest annual event in health finance. And when I was out at the conference earlier this year, which took over a big part of downtown San Francisco as investors and companies talked deals or haggled over numbers, it felt like we were only getting half the story. So one morning, I went across the bay to Oakland to hear from Vinu Alak, the head of the Center for Care Innovations, about her work with underserved communities and what she thought all the bankers and venture capitalists at GPM were missing about healthcare. You'll hear my conversation with Vinu in a moment. We recorded it on site in Oakland, so it may sound a little different from our usual episodes. But first a reminder, if you like Pulse Check, rate us, review us, share it with a friend. You can find us on your favorite podcast app by searching Politico Pulse Check. And you can find me at ddiamondpolitico.com if you have feedback, suggestions, tips about the show. And with that, here's my conversation with Vinu Alak. We were just in your office. There is a wall of sticky notes that are color-coded. Can you walk me through what are those sticky notes tracking? Is there a method to the color coding that is some <laughs> indicative thing for staff at the Center for Care Innovations? Yeah. So I started putting together those sticky notes as a way to keep track of everything we work on and help us also think about how to staff our projects because we're a small and mighty team um, and thinking about who should be working on what and what percent and when it ends. It just was a great way for me and I think the staff to, to kind of see as a whole everything we're doing at CCI. So um, there is some color coding. There's We have our innovation projects. So we have a, an innovation portfolio. We have our project focused on value-based care and population health and data. Um, and then we have sort of our emerging programs coming up. So there's a little <laughs> um, uh, color-codedness to that um, wall. Of those two dozen or so projects, yeah. is there one that is particularly central to the center's mission? Is there one that maybe more resources are, are devoted to than, than others? Um, I think... Our programs, I don't know that there's one that's central. Um, I think our innovation portfolio got us started a few years ago in a very distinct way. Um, and um, those are things that, for example, we're working on human-centered design training. We've been doing that for five years now. Up until then, um, the concept of human-centered design and innovation was new to the safety net. Um, I think people had just come along with how do you do improvement, but this concept of innovation was very new. So we started that program in partnership with a design firm, Kaiser's Innovation Consultancy, and it's been going on and really well-received. Um, the other innovation areas that we've done a lot around is bringing um, technology innovations into the safety net. So I used to be at the California Healthcare Foundation, and I attended so many of these innovation conferences, and I realized it was such a different world. It was like all the people in blue suits and um, you know entrepreneurs like doing all these great pitches, and there wouldn't be one person from the safety net in the room. And the things that they were developing were like you know fancy Fitbits and things that like had very little relevance to our safety net populations. And so we started that as a way to say, okay, entrepreneurs, there's a huge swath of the population that is not getting any innovations. You're not doing a lot of um, development for them. How do we start attracting people and showing them that the safety net systems, clinics, public hospitals are great places to test things. Um, and these are the people who could probably benefit the most in the world. 
One reason I really wanted to talk to you is there have been hospital leaders who have come on this podcast. I have talked with lawmakers who kind of look across the country and say, these are the problems as we see them as U.S. congressmen. You are out there working with the safety net every day. Obviously, California is a little different than, say, Tennessee or Texas or Florida, but they're constants throughout. What is the state of the U.S. safety net for healthcare right now? Well, I mean, so we also work in other states. So we've been seeing um, and understanding some of the safe issues in other um, clinics. It's it's in a state of, um, I think the last year has been tough on the safety net. There's been a lot of ambiguity, um, clearly with all the health care reform bills trying to come through. Um, there's been a lot of fear as to what's going to happen um, in the safety net. Is Medicaid going to get cut? Are the health centers right now with the fiscal cliff? There's a, there's a huge potential to lose a lot of funding, a lot of support. Uh, people are a little hesitant to hire new people, take big risks right now. So um, I think, you know, we up until last year, um, the work in the safety net has been actually really exciting. All the incentives seem to be finally aligning. People were, you know, we're not having the old discussions around, do we really need to do patient-centered care? Like there was an upward momentum in terms of making a difference. And I think this past year, things stalled a little bit and people are just trying, waiting to see. I mean, I think the hope is that value-based care is going to happen. The hope is Medicaid's not going to get cut. And if all that happens, I think the safety net could be in a really strong place. But right now, I feel like we're in a state of ambiguity and concern. Is there something specific in California, a state that has been pretty progressive at trying to cover the uninsured even before the ACA took effect, a state where there seem to be a lot of liberal progressive champions in, in government and throughout? Is there something that's happening here that could be exported or taught to other states looking to improve their own safety nets? Yeah. I mean, I think we have been doing um, a lot of work to prepare people for value-based care. Um, In California, there was a a alternative payment pilot that was going to hopefully go into fruition, and it hasn't. But one of the big things we've learned is there's a lot you can do even if those changes don't happen. And so I think in the state, we've made huge progress on um, uh, developing really robust care teams and recognizing that there's a physician shortage and we really need to leverage um, folks like community health workers and medical assistants in new ways and changing folks' roles and scopes. So I think there, there's a lot that can be um, learned and taught and shared with others. I think um, California, just because we have been working in other states, because we're in the heart of sort of Silicon Valley and there's a lot of technology, um, there's been, uh, you know, I think a faster movement in terms of trying out these new products that I think um, some of us have been seeing entrepreneurs pitching, seeing seeing how uh, patient engagement and texting tools can work. I think some of those things are really exciting. Um, I think we've been doing and seeing um, a lot around behavioral health integration that I think could be exported. So I don't know. I'm sort of biased. I live in California. I've been um, working with the clinics in California. But as we've been doing work in other states, I think the sense of um, collaboration in California, I think because we're lucky to have a number of funders um, who are here in the state, clinics are used to working together and sharing. And I think because of that, are able to get further um, than I've been able to see in other states. So, um, yeah. I, I want to just 
be the, the negative person for a moment, or at least a skeptical one. The focus on innovation, innovation as a buzzword, like constantly, it feels like everybody's got an innovation lab or innovation fellows. And I think that's that seems like a good thing, but can, can there be like too much innovation? Can there be too many ideas that people are trying to put forward? Yeah, I think um, there definitely can be um, innovation fatigue and um and I think the hardest part of true innovation isn't the coming up with the ideas, is actually implementing and getting to stick. And a lot of the work we do is around that because I think that's actually the tough part. So you can invest in these companies, but if those companies never make it into the safety net and no one ever uses the product, it's not really an innovation. It's kind of an idea. So um, I think what we um, find and, and have learned is like trying to cut through all of the noise to find the ones that are the real ones that are adding value and making change is, is I think, the, the challenge. Um, and in some ways, I think sometimes the word, I mean, it is, the word innovation is way overused and people um, call everything an innovation because in some ways it makes it more interesting. Um, but I think sometimes in the safety net, overusing that word kind of scares people because it, it like signifies like doing something dramatically different. And sometimes it's just a small tweak that's going to make the change. It's not like this dramatic change. You were, you were just talking about going to funders. Is it helpful to pitch a funder if you put the word innovation somewhere in your pitch? Some funders, for sure. Not, not all funders. I think uh, a lot of funders have innovation fatigue as well. But um, I think the ones really working on new things, it, it obviously helps. The industry that has formed around providers, multi-state health systems, insurers that are buying pharmacies or, or vice versa. The, the consolidation among the biggest players, that's obviously not you. The Center for Care Innovations is about filling gaps in the system and, and serving the safety net. Do you think that this push for consolidation in these ever bigger systems, is that a net boon, a negative for the health system, totally neutral? I mean, yeah, I think there's pros and cons. Um, I think some of the pros, like when you look at kind of the national health systems in other countries, um, once you can consolidate, you have some negotiating power, you can get better deals on pharmaceutical drugs, you can, you know, you're, you're able to negotiate in some ways. But I think for the patient, it becomes tough. So we've been working with some safety net systems who work with like a local Medicaid managed care plan. And then they also work with a big system who's been bought like five times. And so they don't even know who the health plan is. And, you know, as they're trying something new or wanting to make a tweak that's going to make uh, patient care better, they're usually doing it with a small Medicaid managed care plan because there's a person to talk to. There's a, you know, someone you can discuss how it's going to make a difference. And with these larger plans, it's like things are delegated down so many levels that it's just like they've given up even trying. So, you know, I think once it's like, you know, once you get on one of those like, um, you're trying to call your credit card company and you're just stuck in this, this like pattern of ones and twos, like you can't, it, it's a lot harder to make change when you don't have a person on that other end. And I just worry with all the consolidation, how do we make sure we hold on to that tailoring and that personalization, the like, you know, like really having the discussions about how to make care better and not just like focusing on costs. Well, you're, you're talking about the health plans specifically. And then I think also about the hospital systems, historically hospitals, community-owned, very tied to a community, and then if a community hospital is bought and bought and bought and then run by a system that's five states away, mm -hmm. it, it makes me wonder, 
how tied can a just what we'll call you know national core or actually forget a hypothetical HCA tenant on the for-profit side ascension on the not-for-profit side these kind of big systems how tied they can be to community needs when they're also serving kind of this national balance sheet and then you work with on the flip side community health centers or safety net clinics that don't really have any aspiration beyond service to a local safety net so when you're looking at providers specifically how how many problems are there from provider consolidation maybe problems that don't always get talked about yeah, I mean, the we've seen this in a lot of um, the working with the community centers that uh, we serve, where they've been working with a small local hospital for years, and all of a sudden that say that problem you talk about comes in, and there um, it, it is a challenge. I think the the partnerships, the flexibility, the arrangements to do what's right for the patients, all of a sudden it bec- it it definitely blows up for them. And so um, we, you know, a lot of the folks that we work with also work with local public hospitals. So California is unique because we have these public hospital systems who continue to have those same partnerships. But I think the provider consolidation, um, you know, the buying of, you know, forming IPAs and forming these big systems, you know, there's benefits to scale in terms of like, you know, you can do things that you couldn't do as a small system. You can have more powerful data systems. You can have hire people that you might not have been able to because you have those. But at the same time, sort of that local um, connection to community needs, that that ability to be able to really, as a community, work on what it takes to be a healthier community, that stuff starts breaking away. And like that's that, I think, is the real potential moving forward, especially for vulnerable populations, is if you get everyone in a community, you know, aligned on a goal to make a difference and everyone's doing their part, that's where you see real changes in community health. So I, th- I think there's a tension there. And um, I do worry about that shift that's happening. Before we sat down for, for this podcast, I was lobbying you and your staff to look at politico.com and kind of wake up, wake up to the news the way we do in D.C. But it, it made me think of a theme that has emerged across this week while I've been here, that Washington at times feels very close. The references to, say, pushing Medicaid work requirements or the impact on rolling back the safety net. But at the same time, Washington also feels like a million miles away, not just 3,000. And California is big enough and independent enough that things happen here. And who cares what's happening in Washington, D.C.? At at least that's the perspective that some folks have given to me. I'm curious, Vinu, for how you feel about what's happening in Washington and how that trickles down to the patients and programs that you work with here. I mean, I would like to say California is its own island, but it's it's not. I mean, from my perspective, the things that have been happening in Washington have been uh, deeply impacting um, how people are feeling, um, how patients on the ground are feeling. I think um, one of the because of the ACA repeal um, movement last year, I know a lot of the um, clinics have been struggling with how do they communicate to this to their patients. Their patients are coming in completely stressed out. Am I going to lose my health insurance? How am I going to pay for my kids' medication? You know, they have asthma. I don't want them to end up in the ER. Like, these things are real. People are scared about it. The immigration stuff is impacting them. I mean, a lot of our clinics are trying to re- reinforce this is a safe place to be. I mean, the things that are happening in Washington are are definitely impacting people on the ground, and our health center partners um, are feeling it um, and having to change a lot of things to help people feel safe and um, that they are protected and that they'll communicate, you know, when things change. But 
Um, they're the, the different things that are happening definitely are impacting people here. What's an example of something that a health center had to change or do differently given the ACA repeal uncertainty? So um, I know a number of health centers have like had to train all their staff on what to communicate about it because people come in and, and I will ask like, am I going to lose my insurance? And so they've had trainings and talking points and putting up things on their websites and, um, you know, really trying to um, not scare people because a lot of the frontline people don't know what it means either. So there's been a lot of like, you know, and then as the next thing comes along, how do we train people on that as well? So those things have been happening. There are so many different chronic conditions that can be traced back to trauma when growing up. How does that get fixed? And, and what sort of safety net innovations can be done to really change the cycle of someone who is in, in a home of trauma and then breaking out from that? You know, one program that we've been in the uh, process of developing is around how do we identify um, when trauma exists early. So starting to do screening from zero to five, um, like early, early um, in a child's development and starting to work with families and the family unit and in the community um, to start changing how they, um, you know, build resilience and build skills for those kids and uh, work on parenting classes and getting families to understand how this trauma can impact people um, in their whole lives. And, um, you know, with a lot of the work that's been done on ACEs or adverse childhood events, um, you know, there's a, a deep connection between um, having, you know, four or more of these and like long-term chronic conditions, suicide risk. I mean, it's unbelievable what's hap- what, what could happen that could impact someone's tra- traje- trajectory in their life. And so we're trying to really focus on that zero to five and how do we even prevent? So if you've had two or three tra- traumatic events, like how do we prevent the fourth and fifth from happening? And so I think it's a combination of starting to ask those questions in clinical care. So up until now, it hasn't been a standard of practice. You know, it's, it's still an area of emerging knowledge, um, but but I think there's a lot that can be done and we're starting a program to uh, focus on that. What is the pitch for someone to do what you do or to join this kind of team where you're working with safety net systems, and it's not as lucrative, and it's not going to get you on the main stage at the JPM Healthcare Conference. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So I used to be an engineer, and I worked for one of those big pharma companies. I worked, Which one? I worked for Abbott Labs. Um, and I was on that trajectory. You know, I was presenting to big hospital systems and um, uh, doing that kind of work. And at the end of the day, it just felt empty. <laughs> it, it really did. I was like, okay, I can, you know, optimize the palettes for this, you know, new drug that we're creating, or I can do something that actually makes a difference. And um, as part of my work there, I was spending time in health systems all across the world. I was traveling to hospitals and um, and also realizing the differences and how, um, you know, a lot of the reasons that kept people healthy weren't the drugs I was working on. It was all these other things in people's lives. And so being at CCI, it, it does feel like um, we're, we're working with the people who need it the most. Um, we are working on issues that um, at the end of the day can, 
you know, really change the trajectory of someone's life um, and, and really make a difference at a, at a local level. Um, and I'm surrounded by people who want to make change in the world. And it's not about making money. It's about, you know, helping people and um, solving critical challenges and, um, um, you know, speaking up for those who can't speak up for themselves. So in some ways, it's like I feel like in a, I'm in a very privileged position. I've been educated. I've had these experiences. And I could either put it to a company to help them make more more money or I could help it you put it towards helping my community be healthier. And for me, it's like a no brainer what I want to do. Do you think that if you'd done it in a different order, if you'd never had that Abbott Labs experience, you would still feel the same way about this? Or would there be part of you wondering, maybe going corporate, going to the more profitable side could be appealing for some other way? You know, it's hard to say because this is the path I've been on. But, um, you know, I look at my friends who are working in that path and frustrated. And, um, you know, it it seems hard to imagine that that would have been the path I'd want to be on. I think eventually I would have gotten here. (laughs) So, yeah, that's just who I am. Well, there's a lot of mission in this office, clearly. Vino Alec, thank you for making time for this conversation. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Vinu Alec and the Center for Care Innovations for hosting our conversation and to Dave Shaw and Michaela Rodriguez for producing the podcast. You can find me at ddiamondatpolitico.com if you have suggestions on the show. You can find the show by searching Politico Pulse Check on your favorite podcast app. You can find a new episode of Politico Pulse Check in your podcast player next week. And one last note. My colleagues and I are doing an ongoing series about the opioid crisis, and we want to hear from you. Are you a patient who's ever used them? Are you a provider who's treated patients who are on them? Go to politico.com slash opioids to tell us your story. That's politico.com slash opioids.